Uh, before I begin, uh, you know, I've been pondering sort of the events of this week nationally, and uh, I, you know, there's always a temptation to talk about current events from a, from a biblical perspective, but I think if I did that, every time there's something in the headlines, I would never get back to our text. And so uh, I make a, a, a discipline of staying with the text and letting the Lord uh, work through His Word in His season, in His time, to bless us. But I do want to commit some time to prayer at the end. When we have our prayer time, we will pray uh, for this nation. We will pray for all the events unfolding. But we are going to stick to our, our verses this morning. And so this morning we are going to return to our study in the Gospel of Matthew. We've been uh, away from this for a little bit, but we're going to enter into a new chapter in our study chapter 13. This also brings us to a new section in Matthew's gospel. Really, this is Jesus' teaching through the parables. Now, when Jesus came to earth, he came really to do one thing, to save his people from their sins. And everything he did during his earthly ministry was in subjection to that end. He did not come to sit as king on David's throne in Jerusalem. That comes later. He did not not come to overthrow Rome and to establish a Jewish theocracy. He did not come to create a kinder, gentler society. In fact, he tells the disciples in Matthew 10.34 that he actually came to start a spiritual war. He did not come to make people wealthy and prosperous. He did not come to make us feel better about ourselves. Jesus Christ came to seek and to save that which has been lost. He's on a rescue mission. But there are two key aspects of his earthly ministry that are worth noting here. One was his teaching ministry, and the other was his miracle ministry. Now, I want you to follow this here. His miracle ministry, the signs and wonders and powers and everything he did miraculously, that existed to authenticate and validate his teaching ministry. The works always emphasize the words. But then his teaching ministry always served his saving ministry. And while Jesus taught all kinds of doctrine, he taught us about God the Father, he taught us about creation, humanity, sin, judgment, salvation, heaven and hell, godliness, morality death and resurrection, all of his teaching ultimately pointed to the grander reality that humanity is lost, God is just, judgment is coming, and Christ is the only way of salvation. Jesus told the crowds in John 10.10, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus came for life. That's why he came. And the way of salvation is communicated through teaching, through proclamation. Because Christ, while He accomplishes the actual work of salvation Himself on the cross, it is the gospel message, the message of salvation, of what He's actually done. That's what must be communicated and therefore believed. Romans 10.17 says that saving faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. And so Jesus was a teacher and a preacher, a communicator, and a commentator. He was a master of words, and language, and rhetoric, and logic, and reason, and argumentation, and delivery. Nobody communicated truth better than Jesus Christ. No greater preacher has ever lived 
than Jesus. Nobody delivered truth better than Jesus. In fact, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we've heard this before, we read that when Jesus had finished those words, the crowds stood amazed at his teaching because he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. There was something different about the way that Jesus communicated the truth. He taught with authority. He taught with with ownership. He taught with conviction. He taught with authentication. And so the question for us is, well, how, how did Jesus teach so effectively? What was his method? Well, one of the most effective teaching techniques that he used was something called parable. Parable. Now, what is parable? I remember when I was in Sunday school as a very young boy, a teacher in my Sunday school class asked the whole group, he said, what is a parable? And after a brief silence, I answered, two bulls. He did not think that was very good. That's not what a parable is, but you'll never forget it. Now, what is a parable? The word in the New Testament that's used is derived from two other words, the prefix para, which means alongside, and then the root verb is balo, which means to throw or hurl or cast down. So a parable is quite literally something that is thrown alongside something else. But when we take this a step further, it refers to a figure of speech or a story or even a real-life situation that is laid down alongside a greater truth. That's literally what we're talking about. Several definitions I read this week. One that stood out to me was from Charles Ryrie. He said, a parable is a figure of speech in which a moral or a spiritual truth is illustrated by an analogy drawn from everyday experience. It's a way to make a, a deep spiritual truth more understandable through a very simple story. And frankly, it's a very useful tool to communicate truth. And Jesus used parable frequently. In fact, we can identify in the, in the Gospels themselves, we can identify at least 40 parables in the Gospel record. Why do I say approximately or at least 40 well because there are certain sayings that we're not really quite sure if it could be categorized as a parable or simply an analogy Uh, but in general scholars think there's about 40 parables in the gospel record what kinds of truths does christ teach through his parables well james montgomery boyce has categorized all of them by theme this is really interesting i think he's noted that there are five major groupings to all the parables, five major groupings. The first, what he calls, are the parables of the kingdom. The parables of the kingdom. That would include the parable of the soils in Matthew chapter 13. The next would be the parables of salvation. Of salvation. That includes the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the prodigal son in Luke 15. Third are the parables of wisdom and folly. Wisdom and folly. That includes the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25. Fourth are the parables of the Christian life. Parables of the Christian life. That includes the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. And lastly, there are the parables of judgment, which includes the parable of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke chapter 16. Generally speaking, all of Jesus' parables fit into those five basic categories. And so for our text this morning, we're going to see uh, Matthew 13. We're going to see that that actually contains, if you were to look at all of them, about eight different parables 
in the course of Matthew 13. We're going to spend the next several weeks in this chapter looking at each of those. And so, if you would, turn to Matthew 13 with me if you haven't already. If you're the kind of person who likes to write in their Bible, you could very easily title Matthew 13 the parable chapter. The parable chapter. That's what I actually have done in my own Bible. It's a chapter, again, that consists of all parables. The the only exception is the last six verses. But everything else is largely parable or explanation of parable. But chapter 13 is really built on the intense confrontation that comes in chapter 12 as the Pharisees try to invalidate the ministry of Jesus and even accuse Jesus of performing his miracles with the help of Satan. Remember this a couple weeks ago or several months ago? We went through this very elongated uh, examination of the, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees attacking Jesus at every possible point and accusing him of, of grotesque sin in the performing of his signs and wonders and teaching ministry. The end of chapter 12 brings us into a, a very brief engagement with Jesus' own family as they try to sort of squirrel him away from the crowds to keep him from danger, and they want to sort of hide him and lock him up in his house to protect him, and that's kind of where we're picking it up right now, where he's inside this house, the family's outside, and so we're going to read this in Matthew chapter 13, building off of that previous narrative. Look at this with me. Matthew chapter 13. That day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. And large crowds gathered to him, so he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell by the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell by the rocky places, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, because they had no depth of soil." And when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Let he, uh, he who has ears, let him hear. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has, shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case... The prophecy of of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts in return, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Now Matthew makes note of the events of chapter 13, again, that are happening on that day. And again, this no doubt refers to the previous engagements in chapter 12. 
Again, back in 1246, we see that Jesus' family is standing outside and he's inside someone else's house. But in verse 1, it says he went outside of the house and was sitting by the sea. And so we know that he is ministering in Israel's northern region of Galilee. And so we most likely the sea is a reference to the Sea of Galilee, which is uh, considering that the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida mentioned back in chapter 11, verse 21, both of those cities are on the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee. So that's probably where he is. Now, of course, he's not alone at the side of this sea for very long. Verse 2 says that a large crowd followed him and gathered around him. And so in order to have enough space for himself to teach, he gets into a boat and sails out just a little ways, maybe a few feet from the, from the coastline, and he sits down. And it says, and while he's sitting down, the crowd remains standing along the beach. And so you can almost see this. He's, he's rowed out just a little bit. He's not out super-duper far because otherwise they can't hear him. But he's off just a little bit. The crowds are all along the shore, and he's going to sit down. He's going to teach them, and they, they're going to be able to hear him. But it's very interesting because it's significant that he's sitting down because the seated posture was the posture of rabbis when they were going to engage in their teaching. So he was teaching as a rabbi from a seated position. That's important. But as he is seated, this, the crowds would have been gathered around, standing up, prepared to hear what he had to say. And what would he teach these large crowds? Verse 3 says that he spoke many things to them in parables. Now, at this point, that's when Jesus launches into the parable of the soils. Now, we're not going to examine this parable today. We're going to save that for next week. And the reason for that is because the explanation of that parable comes in verses 18 to 23. And I want to make sure we give adequate time enough to really study that out and and learn the truth of that together. So we're going to skip ahead just a little bit. Every bone in my exegetical body doesn't want to do that, but we'll do that today. We'll jump ahead just a couple verses. We're going to go to verse 10 today and sort of see where this is being bookended in the the narrative. Now at some point in the course of the day, the disciples come to Jesus and they inquire about his teaching methods. And what do they say? They ask him, why do you speak to them in parables? Why do you do that? Because Mark 4.34 says that Jesus was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. So his disciples got the good stuff. They got the, the explanations and the illustrations and everything. He gave everything to them in private, but not the crowds. And so the question is, well, why not the crowds? Wouldn't, wouldn't you think that if you wanted people to, to hear and to believe that you would give them as much information as possible? I mean, don't you want to overload your hearers so they can have every possible angle of the truth and believe the truth and believe? That's not what he does, though. Verse 11, Jesus answered them, To you, talking about the disciples, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Jesus' answer in verse 11 gives us a framework about how to think about parables. As we dig a little bit further, we see that there's actually a, a twofold purpose here. Twofold purpose that's based on which audience he's preaching to. He only gives two options here. The first is that he, we note the disciples, and he says that disciples, to them, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. So they're in the first group, those who have been granted to know. The second group is the unbelieving crowds. The unbelieving crowds. He says, to them, it has not been granted 
to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. That's the implication. Now, to be clear, these are the same crowds that are coming to Jesus for his signs and his wonders and his meals and his miraculous works. Pharisees and the Sadducees are also in these crowds. Now, to be clear, those who come to faith in Jesus Christ, really, they really come out of the crowd at that point, and they begin to be aligned with the disciples. And so, as his ministry progresses, more and more people are starting to grow in this disciple category. So, his disciples aren't just the twelve. They, be, they become anybody in that group that is a follower, a learner, a student of Jesus. But as for the crowds themselves, Jesus says that they are, are not granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus adds a further delineating statement in verse 12. He says, For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away. Again, two distinct groups of those who will receive the knowledge and those who will not. And again, what is this based on? Does it, does it, is it arbitrary? It's not. It's based on whether or not God, God grants it to them. This has to do with what we know to be the doctrine of sovereign election. Jesus speaks very plainly here. He says, some are granted or permitted to know, and others are not granted or permitted to know. And what is it that it's being granted? He says, the knowledge of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. That includes a true understanding of the the character and nature of God, a right understanding of sin, the revelation of Jesus as Messiah, the way of salvation, the gospel truths, and the truth about heaven and hell, and more. These are no doubt the, the gospel truths that are not granted to the crowds. And we see this expressed elsewhere in John 6.65. Jesus is speaking about those who would come to believe and who would reject. And he says, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him by the Father. God has to grant for a person to come to Jesus. That's what Jesus says. The Father is the one who chooses who comes to Christ. Colossians 1.27. The Apostles Paul speaks of the people who are the beneficiaries of his own preaching ministry. And he notes that those to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery, which Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's talking about the doctrine of regeneration. He's talking about the indwelling ministry of the Spirit. That's been granted. That's been willed by God for his people. 1 John 2.27, John calls this special work of understanding the things of God, he calls it the anointing. Anointing. He says, whereby the anointing which you have received, he's talking to the church, the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, just as it has been taught you, so abide in him. Well, what is this? This is God granting certain people to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And the question arises then, is it fair? Is it fair that God chooses who he will reveal these things to and who he will not? Well, Paul answers this objection in Romans 9, verses 14 to 18. He says, what shall we say then? Because the accusation is that somehow this is unjust. Romans 9, 14, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? Paul says, may it never be. 
For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Then he cites Pharaoh. And the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, that my name be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. It's up to God. It's up to God. And so there's a delineation between those to whom God's knowledge and understanding He has granted and those to whom He has not. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Again, verse 12, For whoever has this saving knowledge, to him more shall be given, so he will have an abundance. Here's how it works. When God redeems a person, He gives them spiritual understanding, and then what happens to you when you're a Christian? Your understanding and your appetite for truth begins to grow. And over time, you begin to absorb more and more. You want to learn more and grow more. You want to take it in. And if that appetite does not ever exist in you, I would examine your own heart. But for believers, there should be this appetite. Now, does it wax and wane sometimes? Of course it does because we're fallen and we're fleshly and we're human. But God does give an abundance to His people. But what about those who have not received the saving knowledge? He says, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Or as Hebrews 6.4 says, those who have once been enlightened, they see the truth for a minute and then fall away, which means they were never saved at all. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. In other words, they render themselves to be enemies of Christ. That was the issue for the Pharisees and Sadducees. They claimed to want to know the Messiah. Oh, of course we want to know the Messiah. We have a temple for Him. We have the verses written on our foreheads and the tassels that show that we've been learning this for our entire life. Of course we want to know who the Messiah is. But as soon as the Messiah shows up, what do they do? They reject Him and they kill Him. They don't really want to know at all. It's not been granted to them. And they prove themselves to be actual haters of God at that point. And it specifically says for this reason in verse 13, Jesus says, Therefore, therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. See, this begins to unfold the twofold purpose of Jesus' parables. And I want you to mark this. Twofold purpose of Jesus' parables. The parables function to both conceal and reveal truth. That's what they do. They both conceal and reveal based on the audience. To those whose hearts have been hardened by sin, those who have rejected God and become stubborn in their disobedience, the parables of divine truth, they conceal They conceal. They don't know. They don't understand because of the parable. But to those who have repented of their sins, who trust in Christ, to whom it has been granted to know, the parables actually reveal divine truth. But Jesus speaks of both things here. And in verses 13 to 15, He addresses this first issue of concealment of the truth. And how does this work? When Jesus tells a parable through a very simple story or a common event, The spiritual truth is completely lost on them. For example, let me just give you one example. 
In, Ma in Matthew 13, the parable of the soils, which we're going to look at next week, the unbelieving crowd would hear this parable, which was designed to teach on the nature of the kingdom and those who were coming into the kingdom. They would hear that is simply a simple story of a man who's throwing seed on the ground. It doesn't mean anything to them anymore. They don't, they don't care about it. It's, oh, that's nice. So a guy had some seed. Great. What's the moral of the story? They don't know. They only hear a very simple story. And he says, and while they hear the story, they do not hear what's behind it. Nor do they understand. But again, why does God do this? Why does God do this? Why does he withhold knowledge from these people? The answer is because it fulfills prophecy. Turn over in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. <clears throat> Isaiah 6 brings us into a very famous passage, a, a famous event. This is the commissioning of the prophet Isaiah to ministry. Powerful, dynamic passage. And his commissioning is for him to go to the people of Israel with the express purposes of God. He's going to give them the oracles of God. What's interesting, however, if you were to keep your finger in 6 and go back to chapter 5 of Isaiah, Isaiah 5 actually records a parable, a parable of Israel pictured as a vineyard. So God, even before he, Jesus cites the, the verses in chapter 6 here, there's already a parable given in chapter 5 of Isaiah, and the parable is essentially this. The Lord is expecting to find fruitful plants growing in this vineyard called Israel, but all he finds when he gets to this vineyard is wickedness and bloodshed. And so for the remainder of Isaiah 5, the Lord begins to pronounce judgment and woe on Israel for their sinfulness. So the backdrop of chapter 6 of Isaiah is nothing but judgment and woe. Judgment and woe. I planted a vineyard in you, expecting fruitfulness, and when I came to harvest from this vineyard, all I found was rotten fruit. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. That's the, the theme and the, the sentiment of chapter 5. But then you get to chapter 6, and Isaiah goes from this you see this judgment and woe in chapter 5. Chapter 6, he's transported in this vision to this heavenly throne room. That's where we pick it up in chapter 6. Isaiah says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. I cannot fathom this vision that Isaiah is seeing in the throne room of heaven. 
This is magisterial. This is a remarkable passage where, where Isaiah is beholding the resplendent glory of God and the majesty of heaven in the throne room of heaven. And, and he hears the seraphim cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And immediately, as soon as Isaiah hears this, he becomes keenly aware of his own sinfulness and he begins crying out, Woe is me! Can you imagine seeing the glory of God and it fills you with such terror and fear at His holiness that the first experience that you have is you realize, I am ruined. That's Isaiah. Woe is me, I am ruined. And the first thing he thinks about is, I don't even speak purely. My lips is full of curses and bitterness, and I'm, a, I'm among a people who do the same thing. And what did Jesus say? Out of the, the, the heart the mouth speaks. And so Isaiah knows. This is a, a symbolic gesture then when, the, when the, the seraphim comes and cleanses his mouth. It's a symbolic gesture that Isaiah, even though his sinful lips, which is indicating his entire sinful condition, his sins are being forgiven. He's being cleansed. He's being seared and forgiven. And as soon as Isaiah is forgiven, what happens? He's called into the ministry. He's saved and then called immediately. Now, his ministry is to be to the sinful people of Israel, and he says in verse 5, these are are people of unclean lips and by virtue unclean hearts, but Isaiah is God's chosen vessel. We pick it up again in verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. You see that? Isaiah's getting excited now. Send me. I'll go. I will minister to these people. Do for them what you just did for me. Send me. I'll go. Verse 9. He said, Go and tell this people. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and be returned and be healed. What's going on here? Well, I want you to see this. Isaiah is being commissioned to go to the people of Israel, a people on whom God has pronounced woe, and he's going to preach to them both promise and judgment, yet they're going to hear... And they're not going to understand. God is essentially calling Isaiah to a ministry of judgment to a spiritually hardened people. Isaiah, you're going to go and you're going to have no success. They're going to hear, but they're not going to hear. They're going to to see, but they're not going to see. They're not going to understand anything. All you're going to do is preach truth until they kill you. This is the prophecy that Jesus cites in Matthew 13. Go back to Matthew 13. Now you may notice as you examine your text here that the words here are slightly different than what we read in Isaiah. And that's because Matthew 13 translates what's known as the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Hebrew text. So the Old Testament, if you're into textual criticism, the Old Testament 
is translated into English from what's known as the Masoretic Text. It's one single unified text. So we translate from the Hebrew into English, but this is the Greek translation of the Hebrew and then translated to English. So it's going to feel different, but it is from the same source. It's the same truth here. That's to be very clear about that. But Jesus says that the unbelieving crowds that he is witnessing here, these unbelieving crowds, they then are subject to the prophecy of Isaiah 6. He says, and look at this very carefully, he says, in their case, now he says, for you, you've got a different situation, but in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled. A prophecy of judgment on those who actually hate God, who've hardened their hearts in rebellion, who will not who will not receive the truth. They won't even hear it. They don't have ears to hear, eyes to see. They're stubborn. They're disobedient. And so the judgment here is falling on a crowd that will inevitably put Jesus on the cross. He he says, I'm not giving them this truth because they won't hear it anyway. And isn't that what happens? What we call the noetic effects of the fall, where, where sin hardens you and degrades you to the point where even your mind stops working. Your judgment, your reasoning stops working. And when a culture gets to a place when they can't even think rationally anymore, you know that sin has taken over. They become depraved and deprived of truth. It's a Romans 1 situation. That's the situation now in America. That was the situation here in Israel with with Jesus walking around. They They wouldn't even conceive of the truth. Blasphemy upon blasphemy upon blasphemy. And so in this way, the parables that Jesus gives them conceal the truth from them, those who are under judgment. And later on, in, I think it's verse 35, we, we, we read that Jesus only ever spoke to them in parables. He wouldn't give them a, a single syllable of truth that's, that's explainable. Everything was in parable to the crowds because they're under judgment. But then he addresses the disciples. Look at verse 16. But, I love the word but in the Bible because it's always preceding something good. But, blessed are your eyes. Blessed are your eyes because they see. And your ears because they hear. Blessed are you. Isn't that what Jesus says to Simon? When Simon makes that wonderful declaration a little bit later in his Gospel, Matthew chapter 16, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, because you figured it out. Does he say that? No. He doesn't say that. He says, blessed are you because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You get it, Peter, because God has revealed it to you. He's chosen you. You're coming to me because God has granted this to you. Blessed are you. Rejoice and be glad and be merry. Be thankful that God has revealed this to you, Peter, and all the other disciples who are with him. Blessed are you, my beloved sons, that that God has revealed this to you. Same thing here. Blessed are your eyes because you see. Blessed are your ears because you hear. When someone hears the Gospel and they understand and they turn from their sins, and they confess, the Bible says that there is more rejoicing in heaven for one sinner who repents than 99 who have no repentance. 
When a person comes to saving faith, heaven erupts in praise. And the church of God erupts in praise. That's why we value baptism. Because baptism is a sign, an outward sign, that a person has committed themselves, that God is doing something in them. Baptism itself doesn't do anything for them outwardly, but it's a sign that I understand the gospel. I've given my life to Christ because he's granted it to me. And we see them go under the water, come out of the water, we rejoice. Because God has revealed truth to them. Blessed are your eyes because you see. Blessed are your ears because you hear and understand. It's a great joy. A great joy. And Jesus has chosen each of His disciples to follow Him and granted to them the blessing of understanding the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Of course, we know that there is one who ultimately has not received this. We don't know until later on who that is. Of course, we know as 21st century believers who that is. But in doing this, Jesus is pronouncing blessing on them. He blesses them. This reminds us of the Beatitudes, does it not? Specifically in my mind, Matthew 5.8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are you because you'll see. You'll see God in your heart and in your mind. You'll know Him. But these, these believers are blessed. They're happy. They're rejoicing. Because for them, the parables don't conceal truth. For them, the parables reveal the truth. But how? How do parables reveal truth? Because once Jesus explains the meaning to them, once they understand the doctrine... Here's how this works. The story then, or the illustration then, comes to fill out and give an understanding and fix an actual word picture to illustrate the truth in their mind. You know how this works. As soon as someone is teaching something and they give an illustration, you say, oh yeah, that reminds me of this. It reminds me of that. That's what parables do. They they color the truth in such a way that you can paint it into your mind. No longer are the deep truths, they don't consist anymore of complex wording and abstract concepts and principles. Now, the deep things of God will be further explained to you with word pictures. Explain the Holy Spirit, Lord. Well, let me tell you, the Spirit's like the wind. And you go, oh, that's interesting. And that's what we think about, isn't it? The Ruach of God, the wind of God, the Spirit of God. Jesus says, well, let me explain to you what salvation's like. It's like a a sower who sows seed. And you go, I got that. That makes sense to me. And then you start to put the truths, you hang them on pegs in your mind, and you fill out the picture. You can see the truth now because the parable illustrates it. And so for believers, for those who have been given wisdom and insight... The parables reveal the truth of God in a way that was hidden previously. It's incredibly helpful. It's very effective. And by God's grace, it's incredibly kind that He would do such a thing. I mean, God could could speak to us in heavenly language the deep things that only He understands. We would just stand there and our, our brains would fall out of our ears. We'd have no idea. But God stoops to our level. He brings it way down. It says, I'm going to give you some deep truths, but I'm going to give you some pictures as well. I want you to understand. God is so gracious that He wants us to understand the truth. 
is so kind in that way. Praise Him for giving us wisdom and understanding in a way that our feeble minds can understand. And we share the joy of all of this to understand truth. And beloved, you and I will, for the next several weeks, experience the joy of learning divine truth from these parables. Don't miss these parables for the next couple of weeks. Be here for them because this will open up so much to you in your mind of how to frame how Jesus teaches about things like the kingdom and the future. But also I want you to ponder verse 17 with me as we're talking about the theme of blessedness and rejoicing and thankfulness. Jesus tells the disciples in verse 17, For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. For thousands of years, prophets and Righteous men, they they longed to understand the deep things of God. They wanted to understand the nature of salvation, the work of the Spirit, the identity of the Messiah. Give us just His name. We want to know His name. They didn't know. They wanted to see the day of the Lord. They, They longed to see the truths revealed to them. And God, by His grace, revealed truth progressively over time. I mean, you think about Daniel who had marvelous visions given to him. We understand his visions better than he did because he didn't have the the revelation of Christ. But Daniel would give prophecy and he would say, "I I saw a son of man standing in heaven. He didn't know that his name was Jesus. And so all of these people, even John 8, 56, Jesus says, Abraham, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Abraham would have loved to have stood here with you and met me. It was a multi-generational buildup of saint upon saint upon saint, a gathered assembly upon gathered assembly, generation upon generation of longing expectancy. They wanted to know the truths that you and I have printed in a book. They didn't have this. And yet they still believed. And yet God chose to reveal these deep truths to a ragtag group of tax collectors, sinners, fishermen, you and me. God chose to be gracious. He withheld it from the prideful religious elite and He disclosed it to the lowly. And He continues to do it even to this day. For Paul says, For consider your calling, brethren. Not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble, You can put that on my tombstone when I die, okay? But here's the thing. God loves to illuminate the hearts and minds of His people to reveal truth to them, that they might know that they need Him. And think about this, that the disciples certainly experienced this, but you and I can be grateful. We can be grateful that God has chosen to reveal these deep truths to us. We can get up in the morning and open our Bible and behold truth that was concealed for generations, for centuries, for millennia. We get to have access to the mind of God revealed to us. His complete revelation of what He will give before He returns again. It's a blessed joy that we could even afford Bibles. There have been generations of people who couldn't even afford a Bible. There was one Bible in one church in the town square and they had to go to it to get it. We can order online and get it delivered to our house They're on our phones. Think about how blessed we are 
the kindness of God to give us and grant us this deep truth. Praise Him, O church. Praise Him for giving us wisdom and understanding and humble yourself. Humble yourself. Be repentant of your sin. Ask the Lord for wisdom and trust in Him alone. And by God's grace, you and I together will understand God's truths revealed to us in the parables of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to You. You are all-wise and all-knowing, omniscient to the perfect degree. You are truly and fully perfect in Your judgments. And we've been reading in Psalm 119 over and over again, extolling and rejoicing in Your law, Your perfect Word and Your wisdom and Your righteousness. And so God, You have chosen to reveal these deep truths to those whom You have redeemed by Your grace through faith in Christ. And so Lord, as we endeavor to understand these parables in the coming weeks, Lord, would You, would you turn on the lights in our mind? Would You open up our hearts open up our ears and open up our eyes to see and meditate on Your deep truth. Lord, be gracious to me as a teacher to help communicate these truths in a simple and clear way. Lord, that Your church might grow exponentially in this one chapter alone. That You would be so gracious and so kind as You always are to bless this church with Your truth. And God, I pray that if there's anyone here who doesn't know You, to whom it has not yet been granted. I pray that they would see their own sinful condition, their need for forgiveness, and they in turn would cry out to Jesus Christ, Save me, O Lord. Cleanse my lips. Cleanse my heart. Save me. Restore me. And draw me to You, O Lord. And we know that only happens by the death of burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, please save abundantly. Save people. Save sinners from their sins. And Lord, as we join together with so many churches, even today, even now, to pray for all those in our nation who desperately need salvation, that You would grant repentance and faith to multitudes, O Lord. Be gracious to us, O Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.